Hey there, welcome to another episode of Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week we are taking a trip across America. First up with comedian Chris Gethard, whose new comedy special documents a tour that he went on right before the pandemic. He visited all kinds of places, including a very lightly regulated alligator park in Florida where they just like give you a pack of hot dogs and turn you loose with the gators. Then we're going to talk to the writer Clint Smith about his really remarkable new book, How the Word is Passed. It examines the legacy of slavery through various sites across the country, from Angola Prison all the way up to Wall Street. Then we're going to visit one of my favorite places, Atlanta, Georgia, and hear music from one of my favorite artists, Faye Webster. So that's the plan. Please buckle up and keep your arms and legs inside the radio show at all times, because the journey gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. I um, am enjoying this week. I know for you, though, because you are also a professor, it's finals week. Do you get like anxiety as a professor around finals the way that that, that we students would get? More so this finals week and the past few finals weeks because of COVID. You know, everybody's so stressed. You just kind of want everybody to just make it through. Come on, guys. Just just come with me. I feel like I'm running up the hill and like turning around being like, come on. No one gets left behind, you know? <laughs> well, let's just consider the next hour a little mental break yes. from your real job. Uh, you ready to do some live wire? I am so ready. All right. Molly, are we recording? We're rolling. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, comedian Chris Gethard and writer Clint Smith with music from singer-songwriter Faye Webster. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you so much, Professorello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. (laughs) Uh, We have asked the Livewire audience a question for this week's show. We asked, what are you most looking forward to this summer? And we are going to hear everyone's answers to that question coming up. You know what I'm not looking forward to, Elena? Wow. The air conditioning temperature mm. indoors. It's just getting warm enough now that all of the restaurants that are open and allowing people inside have set their AC, as I wrote on Twitter, at 
Superman's ice fortress temperature. <laughs> and then someone corrected me and said it's his fortress of solitude. And then I blocked them. Uh, so <laughs> take that. We're going to read those responses to that question coming up in just a bit. First, though, of course, we got to do the best news we heard all week. This is our little weekly reminder that there is good stuff happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Well, you know, it's Pride Month, yeah? Yes. Um, and I love Pride Month. And my favorite Pride Month stories are always small town Pride Month stories. Like last year, mm. uh, a friend of mine that was up in Homer, Alaska, went to Homer's first Pride Parade. This Pride story comes from a small town in deep east Texas called Lufkin. Okay. So there's a bakery there called, appropriately enough, Confections that posted on their Instagram four really beautifully decorated rainbow heart cookies with a little message oh. about, like, happy pride, come get some pride cookies. And, um, you know, this is a small business in a small town, so every sale counts. And unfortunately, they started getting some negative mail and somebody canceled a five dozen cookie order that they had already fulfilled that they were coming to pick up the next day. So they had made all of these cookies and then the person said no thanks because they had also made pride cookies? That's right, because they had advertised uh, mm. pride cookies. So they they told their loyal followers. They also lost a few followers on their Insta and Facebook pages. And then the community just showed up. They, they said, the bakery confection said, you know, if anybody would like to buy some cookies, today would be a great day to do that. We got some extra. And there's a photo that uh, somebody took of just the line around the corner of this lovely town square in East Texas. And they sold them out of every Aww. last crumb sugar, maple, iced, glazed, anything they could find. People were just buying bags of flour. Yeah. They were just, just out of the back of the store. <laughs> they bought the cash register. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then people still wanted to donate. And so, and this is one of the things that I love about pride. Pride is about lifting your community up among mm -hmm. other many very important things. When the bakery ran out of cookies, they just started taking donations for the local animal shelter and nursing home. So um, they ended up turning this kind of really negative experience into a fundraiser for the people of their town. And I just, that makes me proud. I'm sure that makes them so proud as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So Lufkin, Texas, if you're in Lufkin, Texas, stop on by to Confections Bakery That's and, right. and keep the goodwill rolling. Um, the best news that I saw this week uh, came from upstate New York, where a guy named John Schultz and uh, a gal named Joy Morrow Knowlton were married. They had started dating during the pandemic, uh -huh. which is somewhat novel. It's also novel is that they are both 95 years old. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so they started dating during the pandemic and they would like be on the phone every day. Oh. Her son said, which is like very cute. I imagine one of them with that phone that has like the very long cord. The curly cord. <laughs> from the kitchen and you try to hide from your parents yeah, and talk the on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> they are like a very cute couple. Uh, John says he married her for her money. He said she is richer than he is. He said uh, she bought me a walker. It was $159. Oh my God. He said at least she did have money. That was until she bought me the walker. Oh, no. he apparently a very expensive walker. He proposed to her dozens of times before she said yes. And she says that she finally said okay because they had some snow days. And she couldn't visit him, and she said she really missed him. Oh. So that is why she finally said, okay, 
I will, in fact, marry you. So now they're married, and they're this is a, these are the things they like to do. They like to take long drives to nowhere, <laughs> and they like to hit a balloon around in their house. <laughs> I want to be 95. <laughs> what a life. So, so like the greatest life ever. So there you go. Aww. The uh, The nuptials of John and Joy is the best news that I heard this week. All right, let's bring our first guest onto the show. He hosts the podcast Beautiful Anonymous. Uh, he's been on This American Life a bunch of times, and he's written books. But he's also been performing stand-up comedy for a long time, about half of his life, in fact, which is where the name of his new comedy special comes from. It's called Chris Gethard, Half My Life. Chris Gethard, welcome to Livewire. It's a joy to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's nice to see you again. Last time I saw you was in uh, Port Townsend, Washington, at a festival where there was lots of people. I know most of your work involves being in a room with crowds, which has been not how things have been working for the last year plus. How's that been for you? Were you trying to do like Zoom comedy or anything? I quickly learned that Zoom comedy was not for me mm. um, in the sense of trying to do stand up. I found it. I feel like a lot of people were actually getting a lot out of it, and I don't disparage that. But for me, it just felt kind of like I need a crowd to tell me what's working and what's not. That's the point of doing small shows. So I did do some live stream stuff, and me and my friends teamed up on a on a Twitch channel called Planet Scum. And we would all do shows there. But as far as trying to do stand-up on Zoom, I just said, this does not feel great. So I... I, I greatly miss live shows. I've done a few since New York really started lightening up, and uh, it felt even better than I thought it would. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about this new special of yours, which, by the way, is a Chris Gethard, Half My Life, is kind of watching you do crowd work and watching some of the listeners physically assault you on stage, et cetera. <laughs> like, I've always admired your comfort in not knowing how things are going to go on stage, whether it's your TV show you did on public access or even like just your podcast, Beautiful Anonymous, where you're taking a phone call. Has that something that you've always just been like comfortable with, like not knowing how it's going to go? Or have you developed that muscle throughout your career? I think both, to be honest. I think I, I came up at the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York when it was really in its golden age. I mean, I would do their Sunday night show and sometimes the lineup would literally be Amy Poehler, Seth Meyers, Horatio mm. Sands, Jason Sudeikis, <laughs> and me. <laughs> and I'd sit there and go, well, I'm never going to be the funniest one. Like my my two best friends, I was on an improv team with Bobby Moynihan, who went on to SNL, mm, uh -huh. and Zach Woods, who was on The Office, Silicon mm. Valley. So I just went, I'm never going to be the funniest one. I'm pretty funny. Mm. I'm confident in that. But I started to realize, I think I'm maybe the one who's most willing to be honest out of any of my peers. Mm. And I'm maybe the one who is willing to live in an uncomfortable moment more than a lot of my peers. So it's kind of born out of necessity. And then I, I really came to love it. And like you said, my TV show and podcast, I, I really just like, you know, it sounds like a cheesy thing, but I really like embracing chaos. I don't try to foment it when I'm doing stand-up, but if it happens, I sort of love it. And that's why shooting it at 10 venues and self-funding this were kind of uh, in some ways not smart, but I knew <laughs> I knew it would allow me to sort of, you know, 10 different venues. I'm like, I know myself well enough. 
one of those shows is going to fall apart in an interesting way <laughs> and self-funding. And I go, now nobody can give me notes. I feel like a lot of people who would give notes would say, let's not show the footage of the girl who got on stage in Baltimore and wrestled you to the ground. I mean, it was like literally the first thing I brought up though. So I guess good call leaving yeah. it in. I think so. I, th I, th I think a lot of things that I do tend to confuse people with sort of creative or corporate mandates. <laughs> so I, I, I feel like my stuff is not for everybody, but I know what works for the people who it is for. And it's things like that. And you were putting it together, I'm assuming, because all of the, the dates were booked in 2019, but then you're putting it together when you're in quarantine. So that must have been really interesting to kind of have this record of your career the, the year before the few, I, I don't know how long the tour was, but. It ended fall of 2019. So it really was like the last road gigs I did. Huh. Um, 20, it was so strange to just see as we realized that the pandemic and quarantining was going to go on much longer than any of us anticipated. I'm sitting here going, wow, I'm watching all this footage. Three of these venues closed in the course of the quarantine. Wow. I'm watching this footage going, I'm watching all these shows and I don't know if live performances are going to feel like this ever again. Mm -hmm. Like... You never want to say there's a silver lining to any of this. It's been horrible. But one of my hopes is that it's coming out right now as things are opening up again. And mm -hmm. I hope people watch this thing and it gets them excited to go out again and to support mm -hmm. artists again. And specifically, even more than an artist like me, to support that venue in your town that isn't necessarily the Live Nation Ticketmaster supported one. To go like, these are places that are community driven and they bring a lot to their communities. I hope people see it and go, man, it is, it is fun. It is exciting to be in an environment like that. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to Chris Gethard. His new comedy special is Chris Gethard, Half My Life. Don't go anywhere. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels 
It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Chris Gethard. His new comedy special is Chris Gethard, Half My Life, which follows him on a uh, comedy tour kind of right before the pandemic happened. There's a really poignant scene where you're like in your car and you're near Detroit (laughs) and you're kind of like wondering, I think you said something to the effect of like, I have a beautiful wife and child at home. And I don't really know why I feel compelled to do this. Why are you compelled to do this, to go out and stand in front of people and perform comedy? Well, the answer might be a little Hallmark card, but I've been thinking about it a lot. And it's it's something that I think you see in the special over and over again is, it is a little strange to be 40 and to have made work in the past that's hip. And then to go, and now my act is a lot of like raising a kid and buying a house in the suburbs. and. Why am I sitting in traffic anymore? And I've actually been thinking about when I come back to live shows, committing to this even harder is, I say at one point in the special, something I really think about a lot, which is there are all these people, they bought tickets to see me. That's a vote of confidence in me. That's very flattering. And those people, I hope all of them are having a great day, but it's probably not true. Mm -hmm. Somebody might be having a really bad day. And I think about being a comedian and what comedy should be for. It should not be about my ego. It should be about saying, who's that person who's having a bad day? And can I cheer them up for an hour tonight? Can I just make them forget whatever is bothering them for an hour? And that's one of the good sides of getting older, right? Is you kind of stop viewing life as as you as the hero in the middle of some Joseph Campbell hero's journey. <laughs> I think having a child also too. So my priorities, none of them are about me anymore. And as a creative person, that's actually very freeing and has my gears turning. Mm. Well, speaking of which, there's a lot of uh, the actual comedy in this special that's about where you're at in your life. The amazing description of a birthing class you and your (laughs) wife went to with like a very memorable nurse from Long Island. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of got the sense that like you were excited to get back to being Chris Gethard comedian and not Chris Gethard professional depressed person. Cause like that's a whole part of your career that you've talked about and written about, but this was just joke jokes. Yeah. And it's, 
it's so astute. And you're actually the first person, as I've been promoting this, to kind of really sense that underlying aspect of this special. Um, I did a special about my past with depression and suicidal um, ideation and, and even, even self-harm. And it was very meaningful to me. And a lot of people have told me it was meaningful to them, and that is great. But I, I, I do get asked pretty frequently to keep speaking on it. I've actually been offered money to write a book about it. I've been offered money to do speaking engagements about it. And I have turned those down because, A, I don't think it would be very kind to myself or an audience to just kind of commodify or exploit my pain any further. Like, I feel like I've said what I need to say. I feel like that special put it out there on the table. At this point, I'd just be making money off of the fact that other people are depressed and want to hear me talk about being depressed. It's not a moneymaker. And to be that guy forever also means that I will have to dwell in it forever. And I'm mm. doing a lot better in my life. So selfishly, it's a self-protective thing to go, Sometimes I go to weird alligator theme parks in Orlando. <laughs> and one time when I was growing up, a guy did something really crazy on the school bus. Like those are jokes I work on. Those two in particular, I've worked on those for seven or eight years, predating career suicide by far. And I don't need to keep making money off of my pain because at the end of the day, you're just exploiting the fact that other people have pain. I don't ever want to turn uh, people suffering from mental illness into a demographic that lines my pocket. It would mm. be gross. Well, speaking of your memorable trip to uh, a theme park in Orlando, you yeah, there's a very memorable uh, part of the film where you're talking about this place, Gatorland. And I mean, it's it's fascinating because, first of all, just like your description of this place is hilarious. But then there's this whole after story, too, about your relationship with the guy from the place. Can you just start with, without giving away too much from the special, I guess, talking a little bit about Gatorland and, and why it so captivated you? Well, I've always really loved sort of like old school roadside places, architecture. I've driven Route 66 myself, twice by myself. And oh. just those places that are kind of from a past that was a little more lawless and a little bit less corporate. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you, like Florida alone, it also has Coral Castle. It also has the Wikiwachi Mermaid Park. Like <laughs> just Florida has these places that you're like, how do they still survive? You are speaking Elena's language <laughs> yeah. right now. Yeah. Florida lives for this stuff. I, I love it. And I actually worked in a magazine called Weird New Jersey that was kind of like oh, focused yeah. on all this stuff in Jersey. And I just love that vibe. And Gatorland, I think, knocks that vibe out of the park. <laughs> also, I talk about how crazy Gatorland is. They also rescue animals that would otherwise be euthanized. Like they do good stuff too. But the joke is, let's boil it down to the nuts parts. And, and luckily they have a good sense of humor about the fact right. that there are many. They, they don't hide that. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I really appreciate about your work in general, Chris, and, and also this special is, I feel like you're very careful to, like none of it, it seems to be mean-spirited. Which can kind of read as like it's tame, and it's not even that. It's just that like I just it doesn't seem like you feel the need to to belittle anyone in any of these like uh, you know various parts of your of your you know your stand up special, which I thought was kind of cool. Even Gatorland, like there's a real affection there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't see the point of being mean. Comedy is supposed to make people happy, and to be fair, like Don Rickles, brilliant, mm. absolutely brilliant. And there's comedians in that vein now where I go. Go have your career. And if there's an audience that loves you for it, it's just not me. And 
even when I get heckled, I really actually handle hecklers quite well, but very often it's because I will get self-deprecating in the face of it where it's clear, like, you can't say anything mean enough to me that is meaner than what I can say about myself. <laughs> Self-heckling. Yeah. And, and, and the cheesy thing too is I, I've had a poster on my wall for many years now that's this Woody Guthrie quote, and I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it. It's something along the lines of, like, I don't have any interest in making songs that beat you down, that make you feel bad about yourself. Like your your jukebox, it's overloaded with songs like that. I, I want songs that pick you up. And that's a very boiled down, bullet point, less eloquent thing of what Woody Guthrie said. But when I first heard that quote, I said, yeah, like, it's got to be about the audience. It's got to be about the audience experience. And who wants to leave a comedy show feeling angrier? <laughs> than when they came in. And again, actually some political comedians who can like put fire in people's guts, I applaud them, absolutely. But I'm not gonna spend 20 minutes of my show getting someone mad enough that I can then be a hero for right. defeating them. It's just, I, do, I have other ways to spend my time, frankly. Right, getting wrestled on stage, which is yeah. where we sort of started this conversation. Making pancakes. I, oh, the pancake, <laughs> people love a good pancake show. When they can get one. And that girl, I, I bet she felt great when she bested me on stage physically. I bet she yeah. was, was flying high. So yeah, <laughs> each individual. I want to give everybody who ever buys a ticket to see me a pancake, or I want them to win a physical fight at my expense. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Chris Gethard promise, y'all. Mm -hmm. um, well, you're going to be out on the road again this summer and this fall, so people should get tickets to those shows if they're coming. Uh, they're going to be in the area, and everybody should check out Chris Gethard, Half My Life, the new comedy special. It's really great. Chris, thanks for taking the time to come on the show it was fun to catch up with you always always it's been it's been uh it's oh it actually has been a joy both times and i thank you for the time all right thanks man that's chris gethard right here on livewire i can't recommend his podcast enough beautiful anonymous it's so interesting he just takes a phone call from an anonymous person or at least someone he doesn't know in advance and he just sits there talking to the person for the whole show. It is amazing. Uh, it is very, very uh, life affirming, and it's sort of high art in its own way. Um, speaking of high art, his new comedy special, Half My Life, is available on all the streaming platforms right now. Okay, it's time for the Live Wire listener question. Uh, we asked folks, what are you most looking forward to this summer? And everyone responded to that. Elena has some of those responses. What are the listeners saying, Elena? Uh, this is like a tantalizing list. Are you ready to get pumped for summer? Because these answers mm -hmm. are going to pump, clap you up. <laughs> <laughs> we try to keep our Saturday Night Live references yeah. <laughs> squarely in the last 25 years. Okay. Uh, here's one from Jennifer. Jennifer is looking forward to Picking peaches on a sunny August day, the smell of summer in a nutshell. Oh. oh my gosh. I mean, you're from Georgia. You know from peaches. Well, I'm from Georgia, but I'm also from South Carolina where the peaches are better. I'll tell oh, you what, wow. you, you get yourself a Gaffney peach around the first two weeks of July and you, you don't want to eat anything else. David, my partner, um, is the most forgiving man I've ever met. But one time my mom drove up with peaches from South Carolina and I gave about yeah. three of them away. He has literally never 
forgiven me. I've done a lot worse stuff than that, let me tell you. And he has forgiven me for that. But giving away those peaches to a woman on her birthday is the worst wow. thing I have ever done in his eyes. It's that kind of fruit that it's like we are we are hoarding these, we are counting these, and we are carefully protecting them yeah. from uh, from anybody who would want to have one. All right, what's something else that the Livewire listeners are looking forward to this summer? Oh, here's one from Scott. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to this. Scott is looking forward to ice cream trucks. <gasps> yes. As a kid, I feel like if I were to write like a Dave Barry-esque, Aww. like, I don't know, book of essays, it would be called The Ice Cream Truck Was Always on the Other Block. It's maybe more of an Irma Bombeck type of thing. <laughs> when I was a kid, it seemed like my street, the ice cream truck was never on my street. It was always like one block over and, you know, I could hear it and then I would ride my bike to the other block and then it would have moved. I could never quite triangulate where it was at. I think your mama might have struck a deal. Susie Burbank struck a deal with the ice cream truck to never drive down your street is what that sounds that like. That would be very on brand for my mom. <laughs> but now as an adult, I get legit excited when I see an ice cream truck. Oh, yeah. Like, even though I'm 45, I think it's just all of that, like, childhood excitement that never fully uh, uh, connected me up with the truck. <laughs> okay, what's something uh, else that our listeners are excited about for summer? Love this one from Susie. Susie is looking forward to drying my sheets outside in the hot summer sun. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's about a 60% chance that's my actual mother. Because my mom's name is Susie, and no one loves hanging clothes outside more than my mother. Like, I mean, she it was Little House on the Prairie when I was growing up. <laughs> Anywhere we lived, we live in these little tiny rentals in like the middle of a city. Uh-huh. Like, it was not ideal for, and my mom would always figure out some clothesline situation. And you, if you <laughs> needed to find my mom in the summer, she'd be out at the clothesline taking things down or putting things up. The energy bill savings is prodigious if you do that and and also the oh, yeah. i guess it's really a lot better for the environment too but also there's just there isn't a better like smell and feel Ugh. than putting on a shirt or some piece of clothing or picking up a blanket or a towel that's been hung out to dry oh yeah a sun-dried towel mm. yes yeah. bring it okay. Susie. bring it i'm gonna figure out how to rig up a clothesline here at my apartment in portland <laughs> 20 floors in the sky. All right, what's something else about summer that has our listeners excited? Okay, how about this one from Chris? Chris says, people like to complain about the cold in the winter, so I'm looking forward to reminding them that this heat is exactly what they asked for. Wow. (laughs) I imagine like Statler and or Waldorf from The Muppet Show saying that. I know. Chris seems like the person who's like hot enough for you. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it is hot enough for you. You see me, I'm being reduced to a pool of sweat right now. Oh, I can't wait for that feeling. I love baking I in the sun. I love it. This is going to be a summer. Hot to Luke remember. Summer. It's going to be hot I'll Luke Summer. I'll tell you summer. what, hot, hot Luke Summer is finally here. We've been waiting 44 years for it. <laughs> it's finally here. I'm going to do middle aged woman summer. It's just going to be nothing but caftans. <laughs> You've been doing that for a couple of years, True. If, if I've been tracking. In all seasons. <laughs> hey, special thanks this episode to Leslie Bevan of Portland, Oregon. Leslie is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports our show with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support from Leslie because it's genuinely how we're able to keep the show going. So a big thanks this week to Leslie for helping out with Livewire. This is Livewire. Our next guest is a poet. He's also a staff writer at The Atlantic. 
And the New York Times calls his latest book, How the Word is Passed, an extraordinary contribution to the way we understand ourselves. I have to say that is really spot on yeah. as far as how I feel about this country having now read his book. Yeah. Entertainment Weekly calls it a history of slavery in this country, unlike anything you've read before. Uh, we're very excited to have him back on the show. Clint Smith, welcome back to Livewire. It's good to be back. Yeah, uh, we missed you. This book is is a really incredible piece of writing and research. Uh, what were you trying to understand uh, for yourself when you started working on this? Yeah, so so this book began in earnest in 2017, in the month of May, um, over the course of several weeks when uh, three different Confederate statues in my hometown in New Orleans came down, a statue to Robert E. Lee, PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, all leaders of the Confederacy. And I was watching these statues come down, these statues that had been part of the iconography of my uh, childhood and part of the landscape of my childhood, and and thinking about what it meant that there were more homages in this majority black city to enslavers than there were enslaved people, right? Like, what does it mean that in order to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard? What does it mean that in order to get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Highway? What does it mean that my middle school was named after a Confederate leader, that my parents live on a street named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people, that I would go on tours when I was a child of plantations and nobody would say the word slavery. Um, and how does that happen in this place? Uh, and and what are the implications of that? You know, what, Because we know that memorials and monuments and historical landmarks and, and the names of streets and the names of schools are not merely symbols, and they are not merely names, they are reflections of stories that a society tells itself. And those stories embed themselves into the narratives that shape our collective memory and understanding of a place. And, and those narratives shape public policy, and public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. And so I wanted to, to understand how my own hometown was sort of thinking about and, and discussing or failing to discuss its relationship to the history of slavery. And then I kind of broadened it out and, and just got really interested in how uh, different places across the country as a whole, and even across the ocean, um, reckon with their own relationship to this history. Is it something that they confront directly? Is it something that they run from? Is it Are they doing something in between? Um, and I kind of went on this four-year journey uh, that led me to uh, dozens of places, but eight of which I document in the book, um, that is... Uh, considering the ways that this country is a sort of patchwork of experiences um, and a patchwork of stories when it comes to how we tell the story of slavery and the way that it shaped the contemporary landscape of inequality. I thought it was interesting that the title of this book is How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. Mm. Uh, that read to me as uh, signaling this is not just something in the Deep South. This mm. goes up to Manhattan. This really, I mean, this entire country is affected by this legacy. Absolutely. And, you know, most of the places in the book are uh, in the South, um, given that I grew up in the South, given that the history of slavery uh, is, is saturated um, in the South, given the history of the Confederacy. Uh, but I also didn't want the reader to, uh, as some do, um, fall into the trap of thinking that this was something that was singularly a Southern problem. And that's why I have a chapter on New York City. That's why I have a chapter on even Texas, right? Texas is some a place that is in the South, but oftentimes when people think of Texas, it's not in connection to slavery. It's in connection to, you know, cowboys and Westerns and um, thinking about, you know, Texas as its sort of own independent entity um, that is somehow not 
linked to this history that it is actually deeply linked to. And even, you know, going to, as I mentioned, uh, across the ocean, I went to Dakar, Senegal, because I was spending all this time at plantations and cemeteries and all these places here. And I got increasingly curious about how the story of slavery is told from the place where the transatlantic slave trade began, right? Like how are young West African students learning about slavery and, and what is the site of memorialization for the, the the place of departure for enslaved people and captured Africans? How do they tell that story? And how is that in conversation with um, the place where they ended up and their destination, which is these these plantations? And so I wanted to put all of these places in conversation with one another in order to, to create a, a sort of fuller survey of what slavery was uh, and, and how people continue to tell the story or, or fail to tell the story of what it was. This is Livewire. We're talking to Clint Smith. His new book is How the Word is Passed. Um, there's a part of this book that talks about what it was like for you to have so much of the Confederate world thrust upon you. Um, and, and that's actually based on a poem that you wrote about, about New Orleans and growing up there. Could you read that for us? Yeah. So, you know, as someone who writes across genre, um, I'll think that something begins as a poem and then it will uh, demand uh, a different form, uh, demand more space. Um, and so that was kind of what happened here. And so this is a poem that I wrote at the beginning of the process of writing this book. And I think this poem gave me clarity about what I was trying to do and, and why these questions felt so, so proximate and, and so pertinent to me. Growing up, the iconography of the Confederacy was an ever-present fixture of my daily life. Every day on the way to school, I passed a statue of PGT Beauregard riding on horseback, his Confederate uniform slung over his shoulder, and his military cap pulled far down over his eyes. As a child, I did not know who PGT Beauregard was. I did not know he was the man who ordered the first attack that opened the Civil War. I did not know he was one of the architects who designed the Confederate battle flag. I did not know he led an army predicated on maintaining the institution of slavery. What I knew is that he looked like so many of the other statues that ornamented the edges of this city. These copper garlands of a past that saw truth as something that should be buried underground and silenced by the soil. After the war, the sons and daughters of the Confederacy reshaped the contours of treason into something they could name as honorable. They called it the lost cause, and it crept its way into textbooks that attempted to cover up a crime that was still unfolding. They told us that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man, guilty of nothing but fighting for the state and the people that he loved, that the Southern flag was about heritage and remembering those slain fighting to preserve their way of life. But see, the thing about the lost cause is that it's only lost if you're not actually looking. The thing about heritage is that it's a word that also means I'm ignoring what we did to you. I was taught the Civil War wasn't about slavery, but I was never taught how the declarations of Confederate secession had the promise of human bondage carved into its stone. I was taught the war was about economics, but I was never taught that in 1860, the four million enslaved black people were worth more than every bank, factory, and railroad combined. I was taught the Civil War was about states' rights, but I was never taught how the Fugitive Slave Act could care less about a border and spell Georgia and Massachusetts the exact same way. It's easy to look at a flag and call it heritage when you don't see the black bodies buried behind it. It's easy to look at a statue and call it history when you ignore the laws written in its wake. I come from a city abounding with statues of white men on pedestals and black children playing beneath them, where we played trumpets and trombones to drown out the Dixie song that still whistled in the wind. In New Orleans, 
There are over 100 schools, roads, and buildings named for Confederates and slaveholders. Every day, black children walk into buildings named after people who never wanted them to be there. Every time I returned home, I would drive on streets named for those who would have wanted me in chains. Go straight for two miles on Robert E. Lee. Take a left on Jefferson Davis. Make the first right on Claiborne. Translation, go straight for two miles on the general who slaughtered hundreds of black soldiers who were trying to surrender. Take a left on the president of the Confederacy who made the torture of black bodies the cornerstone of his new nation. Make the first right on the man who permitted the heads of rebelling slaves to be put on stakes and spread across the city in order to prevent the others from getting any ideas. What name is there for this sort of violence? What do you call it when the road you walk on is named for those who imagined you under a noose? What do you call it when the roof over your head is named after people who would have wanted the bricks to crush you? That's Clint Smith. His new book is How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. Those are really difficult words to hear. Um, I can only imagine for you uh, the experience of researching this book and of really immersing yourself in the trauma of, of, of enslaved people in this country. What was that like for you just emotionally? And like, how are you doing? I mean, there were certainly difficult moments. Um, you know, I think anytime you are deeply engaged in the historiography of slavery um, and, and engaged intimately with the stories of those who were enslaved and, and their testimonies of, of the conditions that they lived in, it can certainly be despair inducing, but it, what I always tell people is that there's also a lot of power in it. And I think part of what, part of what animated this book and animates so much of my work is that I remember growing up as like a young kid in new Orleans and being inundated with all of these messages about why black people lived in the conditions that we did. And, you know, I was always told that New Orleans is the murder capital of the nation. And we incarcerate more people per capita than China and Iran and, uh, Russia and all these authoritarian regimes. And implicit within that is this idea that, like, look at this majority black city with these black people who can't control themselves, who are violent, who are enmeshed in poverty uh, because of their own failures. And I feel like growing up, I was never given the tools or the language or the framework or the history with which to understand how a city like New Orleans came to look the way that it does. And if you aren't given those, then you begin to mistake the poverty or the violence or the disparities that certain communities experience as somehow being a result of something that those communities have done wrong, rather than the result of generations of compounding policies that have created those conditions. One of my favorite essays is by James Baldwin, um, and it's not one of his more famous ones, but it's one that means a lot to me, and it's called A Talk to Teachers. And he wrote it in 1963 uh, based on a speech that he gave to a group of New York City educators. And he says a lot of amazing stuff in there, but one of the things that he says is he's like, the role of the teacher is to help the young black child understand that even though the world tells them over and over again that they are criminal, it is in fact the society that created the conditions that that child is growing up in through no fault of their own that is in fact criminal, right? And it's like a very simple, intuitive thing, but but there are so many young black children, I feel like I was one of them in many ways, who grow up being told over and over again all the things that are wrong with you, all the things that are wrong with people who look like you, all the things that are wrong with your community. You know, in, in many ways, I'm writing to a young younger version of me and trying to give myself a sense of the history that wasn't that long ago. 
one of the things that I had this, uh, I mean, it wasn't an aha moment because you told it to me. So one of the things I learned from the book was this, this idea that white supremacy creates numbness as much as it creates violence. Hmm. You go to so many museums and commemorative sites in the book. In what ways does that kind of public historical practice have the opportunity to like pierce that numbness? I mean, I think just in terms of numbers and logistically, I mean, you know, a place like, uh, you know, the Whitney plantation that I go to, uh, which is this really remarkable plantation museum in Louisiana. And it's, it's so important because it is the only museum in Louisiana or the only plantation in Louisiana that centers the lives of enslaved people and the stories of enslaved people, which which shouldn't be a remarkable thing because these are plantations. They are sites of intergenerational torture and, and chattel bondage. But it is surrounded by a sort of constellation of plantations where people have weddings, where people are using the slave cabins as as bridal suites, where people are taking selfies in front of the homes of former enslavers. Um, and the Whitney is a place that fundamentally rejects that idea. It fundamentally rejects the idea that a plantation can and should be anything other than one an homage to the enslaved people who lived on and cultivated and built that land. And then two, a recognition that it was a site of torture and exploitation over the course of generations for the people who lived there. And I think that part of what I wanted to lift up in this book was the important role that public historians and public sites play um, in helping to shape these discussions for people who, for a variety of reasons, might not uh, be inclined to or have the capital to or the resources to sit down and, and read, um, you know, a book by a professor at Harvard or Yale. Um, but but those books are important because then they shape what these tours look like. And, and I wanted to just sort of tell the story of the various people who are doing that remarkable work. As we were getting the microphone set up and starting everything, we could hear your son, Clint, running yeah. around. <laughs> I'm just curious, you know, what are you going to tell him about slavery when he's old enough to have that conversation or when he asks you about it? What I'll tell him is, is what I believe and what I think about often um, is that from the moment enslaved people arrived on these shores, people were fighting for freedom. And people were fighting for liberation. And, you know, oftentimes people will ask me questions about, like, are you hopeful? What do you, you know, will things change? And the way I think about it is that I'm part of a, a lineage um, of people uh, and come from ancestors who, who were fighting against the existence of an institution for 250 years that ultimately... And ultimately, they won, right? Ultimately, slavery was abolished because of the work enslaved people had done across generations. But the vast majority of people who spent their lives to different degrees fighting against slavery never got a chance to see that, right? Like they never got a chance to see or experience freedom. But it's a reminder that we don't fight for what's right and we don't try to build a better world simply so we can experience the fruit of, of that labor. We build a better world and we fight and we chip against this wall Right. And we don't know how thick the wall is. We don't know what the other where the other side of it is. But we know that us chipping away at it means the people coming after us will have less to chip away at. And ultimately, there will be enough people across generations chipping away at this proverbial wall that ultimately somebody is going to, you know, hit the wall uh, to keep the metaphor going and, and see light on the other side. And and that's how I think of of 
the the work that so many people do now with regard to mass incarceration, with regard to immigration, with regard to policing, with regard to climate change. You know, so when I tell him about slavery, I'm going to tell him about all the people who who gave their lives to make his life possible. Well, it seems to me this book takes a pretty big chunk out of that wall. Uh, the book is How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. Clint Smith, thanks so much for coming on Livewire. Thank you all for having me. That was Clint Smith right here on Livewire. Uh, his book, which I feel like is going to win pretty much every award out there and soon be assigned reading in school. Yeah, it's such an important book. I, I'm so really glad is. we got to be, we got to talk to him. We got to be around when it came out. Really, really yeah. huge. Yeah, the book is How the Word is Passed, and it is available everywhere now. This is Livewire. Uh, we have to take a quick break, but do not go anywhere, because when we come back, we're going to hear some wonderful music from Faye Webster. Stay with us. It's Livewire from PRX. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal T this season, Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, let's hear a tune, why don't we? Our next artist is, no exaggeration, one of my very favorites right now. And it turns out I'm not the only one because one of her songs was even chosen by President Barack Obama as one of his favorite songs of 2020. Whoa. Once again, Elena, Barack Obama upstaging me. Yeah, he got elected first. <laughs> I had this one thing. I was liking Faye Webster. He had to swoop in on it. Um, her latest album, I Know I'm Funny, Ha Ha, comes out later this month. Faye Webster, welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having me. I was telling you before we started recording that a couple years ago, my daughter and I were just on this long drive on a Sunday night, and we happened to turn on the satellite radio, and it was streaming your concert from Bonnaroo live. And it was so good, and it just turned me into an instant fan. That's sick. That's cool. What are the odds? I mean, <laughs> it was meant to be. It was. Um, <laughs> your new album, I Know I'm Funny Haha, ha, is like a great title. Thank you. What's the story on that? Really? It was just like a thought that turned into a lyric that turned into a song title that turned into the album name. But I wasn't originally going to call that. I was just like playing around with lyrics and like trying to come up with something and... I work with my brother. He does like a lot of graphic design and just helps me with my projects. And he was just like, why aren't you naming it? I know I'm funny, hmm. haha. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Maybe I should just do that. Uh, well, we're going to hear a song off this new album. What are you going to play? Um, I'm going to play the first song on the record. It's called Better Distractions. Oh, this is a great track. I love this <laughs> song. All right, this is Faye Webster on the Livewire House Party. i 
sit around until I find something better to spend my time, but nothing's appealing. Nothing really lasts that long for me to realize I'm still alone. You're not with me. Wonder what's inside your mind, but you seem pretty occupied, so I'll leave it alone. Same, share your ways and I'll change the name Make it my own Will you, will you, will you, will you, will you, will you be with me? Jobs and a baby. I just wanna see you. Depending on the time apart, the better that distractions are, and there isn't a why. It only took a couple times without you here to realize, but I figured it out. Thank you so much for coming on the Livewire House Party. Thank you for having me. That was Faye Webster here on Livewire. Her album, I Know I'm Funny, Ha Ha, is out June 25th. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be celebrating Father's Day with the very funny Adam Mansbach. He was struggling as a parent, as many parents of young children do. And so he came up with a book idea, which was Go the Bleep to Sleep. <laughs> so we get some parenting tips from him. We're also going to hear some comedy from Kurt Brownaller about his experience as a new father and the uh, sort of questionable design of some newborn clothing. Then filmmaker Maya Forbes is going to tell us about her father, whose struggles with mental illness were the inspiration for her film, Infinitely Polar Bear, which is a great film. Mark Ruffalo played her father in that. And her sister, China Forbes, is in Pink Martini <gasps> and will perform a song from the soundtrack of that movie. Uh, and, of course, as always, we're going to be looking to get your answer to the listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? I believe a few weeks ago we asked the crowd who their favorite fictional mother was. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to come full circle and ask... Who is your favorite fictional father? 
Okay. I have a prediction. I'm going to write it in the chat of our little Zoom <laughs> right now that this one is going to be the number one answer. So we're going to have to check back and see if I'm right. That's what I think it's going to be. Wow. Okay. Doubling down. Remind me next week to, to check back on this because I think that's a strong guess mm-hmm. on your part, Elena. All right. So if you have an answer to that question, a favorite fictional father that you want to submit to us, go ahead and put those answers in through Twitter or Facebook. We are at Live Wire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Chris Gethard, Clint Smith, and Faye Webster. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Jennifer Vo is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. LiveWire is created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank member Leslie Bevin of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.